Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. We are going to look at a passage today in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers in chapter 20, we will begin in verse 23, and then we will go right into chapter 21 and read through verse 9. It's all one story. Of course, as you know, if you've been around here very long, chapters and verse divisions weren't originally in any of the Scriptures. All of that came much, much later, and so and by different ones. So uh, we'll read from verse 23 and chapter 20 and go right into 29. We're in the wilderness with the children of Israel. And it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron at Mount Hor at, by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron will be gathered to his people. For he shall not enter the land which I have given to the sons of Israel, because you rebelled against my command at the waters of Mirabah. Take Aaron and his son Eleazar and bring them up to Mount Hor. And strip Aaron of his garments and put them on his son Eleazar. So Aaron will be gathered to his people and will die there. So Moses did just as the Lord had commanded. And they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And after Moses had stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar, Aaron died there on the mountain, on the mountain top. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died. All the house of Israel wept for Aaron for 30 days. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, that's another word for desert or wilderness where they were, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into our hand, then we will, or Moses says, I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. And then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of that place was called Hormah. Hormah is an interesting word. It actually means destroyed, and it also means devoted. So imagine the people of Israel coming to this place and saying, we have decided to devote you to God. So we're going to kill you, and you'll be devoted to the Lord. But their destruction was to give glory and honor to God. And then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go 
around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against Moses, God and Moses, why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard or a pole and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it he will live and Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard and it came about that if a serpent bit any man when he looked at the bronze serpent he lived. George Morrison was an old pastor from Glasgow, Scotland, and he made a statement, a quote from him that I like. He said that it took one night for God to take Israel out of Egypt. He said it took 40 years for God to take Egypt out of Israel. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, and you just think about this, now we're in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament. It's called the Torah. The Jews had divided what we call the Old Testament into three sections. They had the Torah and the Nevaim and the Ketuvim, which was the prophets and the writings. But the Torah was the law. And so much of it they learned and received from God. So much time is taken up in the Torah while they are in the wilderness. That's not a bad place to learn some things. And we're going to find out today that there are some things you just must learn in the wilderness. It doesn't seem to be uh, something that we can learn anywhere else. Sometimes God just has to take us there and he has to teach us some things that we can only learn in the wilderness. But if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, it says, It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In other words, the trip from where they left Mount Sinai to where they were going was an 11-day journey. And it took this group 40 years, and they still never made it. It was an 11-day walk, and they still, after 40 years, this group never made it. Now, let's talk about the wilderness for a second. It is a geographical place. You can go to southern Palestine or southern Israel today and You can walk through the wilderness and you can see a lot of things there around the Dead Sea. It's in the southern part and and it is a geographical place and there might be other places because matter of fact, most of the time they spent in the wilderness, they were 
in what we would call the Sinai Peninsula. So uh, all of that is desert land. But just think about uh, geographically, physically, topographically what the wilderness is. It, 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 first of all, is a place with very few distractions. Everything pretty much looks the same. There are not a lot of resources in the wilderness. There's nothing there to really glean. There's, there's not a lot to be had when you're in the wilderness. It is also a place of extremes. It can be really, really hot, and then sometimes it can be bone-chilling cold. If we look in the Bible at people who have gone there, you find that while they were there, they had intense experiences. Some of them had a testing of their character, and some of them experienced tremendous renewal while they were there. Because being in the wilderness, apparently, according to Scripture, is a great opportunity to hear from God. But not everybody does. But it's a great place to hear from the Lord. It's a great place for God to take our lives and remove unrighteousness and replace it with righteousness. Because, yeah, you got it now. We can go through the wilderness and not leave our home. We can walk through a time that, boy, it seems like God is far away. Where resources are hard to come by. Where we pray and we don't feel like we even hear from God, and, and boy, it's like life is just testing us big time, and, and, and it is like that we just, boy, we, we're crying out to God, but it is just a time of dryness, and, 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 and the elements, spiritual elements in our life are just battling against us. We feel just like God maybe has forsaken us or whatever, and you can have all of that, and then sometimes, though, those times end Sometimes they end with a great revelation from God, a spirit of renewal and understanding that, boy, God's way is the only way, and you can learn so much there. I'd like to say we always learn so much there, but so many go there and don't. The people here in this passage never, never got it. Um, but boy, if we could just get the one truth that God was trying to teach them, my way is the right way. Follow me and do what I say. It's, 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 it's a powerful truth. And he tried to teach them that before they ever had to face their enemies in the promised land, before they ever had to establish themselves there as a nation, before any of that, he said, there are things that I need to teach you. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, I thought of it this week. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. And in all your ways, acknowledge him, and what will he do? He will make your path straight. But I also want to read the very next verse, verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. That's the key to it. 
Because it's so easy for us to say, well, pastor, you don't know my circumstances. You're not, you, you don't know why my marriage came apart or you don't know why I'm where I am. And I don't. I, I got all of that. But if you're not careful, sometimes you think you got it all figured out. You can see what everybody's done to you, but you can see nothing really going on in your own heart and life. You have to stop leaning on your own understanding of the situation. You have to get beyond that. Quit being so wise in your own eyes. Maybe consider, I wonder if there's some things about this I don't know. I wonder if there's possibly something going on here that I have not seen. And perhaps in my own heart, I am blinded to what's going on. Jeremiah says our hearts are desperately wicked and nobody can know them. So don't be so smart in your own thinking about things. Sometimes following God, it can be unnecessarily long and, and circuitous, or, 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 or circuitous. I'm trying to use a new word. It means you go around in circles all the time. I think it's circuitous, but... It, seems, it, it, it just seems monotonous. It seems like I'm not getting anywhere, and I ought to be. I'm not where I want to be, and I want to go there. Maybe, God, you just feel like, man, God, you, 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 I, I don't know. I've called on your name, and you're not doing anything. Psalm 25, verse 4 and 5, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Now, verse 5 of 25, Lead me in your truth. Did you get that? Lead me in your truth and you teach me for you are the God of my salvation. It is for you I wait all day long. Sometimes it takes going off into the wilderness. Sometimes it takes us wandering away from maybe where God put us for us to learn that I don't have my own truth and I can't make up my own truth. Truth is not something that any of us can own. Truth is truth as determined by God. It is that which corresponds with reality, and reality is, is orchestrated by God himself. So teach me your truth, God. Those are some things that we have to learn sometimes in the wilderness. Just can't learn them at church. I don't know why. Can't, man, you can be in church and be in the wilderness too. But yes, it's the spiritual highs and the mountain peaks and all of that. Sometimes there's just so many distractions. There's so many things pulling and tugging at us and so many things that we neglect to think about in our minds that we're not nearly as introspective. I can tell you, when you get in the wilderness and you just feel deserted and and you feel like, boy, I have no idea where to turn, and life begins to get monotonous, and your spiritual walk becomes very dry. I tell you, at times like that, like he did with Elijah, like he did when he called Moses, and even the Son of God himself, before he ever started his ministry, he spent 40 days in the wilderness. And why did he go? The Spirit of God, which was also a part of him, <laughs> led him there. Well, there's some, some things 
some lessons we must learn in the wilderness. Let's take a look at them. There's some things we should learn about life. And we can learn this in the wilderness. Concerning, first of all, our disappointments. Now, I want to go back to why I started in chapter 20. When all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron for 30 days. You know, this just doesn't seem fair. And perhaps you had no idea uh, that, well, Aaron didn't get to go to the promised land either. But he didn't. And if you look at Aaron, he seems like such a sweet soul and a humble man. He was older than Moses. So his younger brother is the one that's making all the commands and calling all the shots. But boy, they seem to work together really well. He never seemed to pull a rank on his younger brother. He knew that God had appointed Moses to do what he was doing. Aaron was the priest, and he was the one that represented people to God and God to people, and he had his own job. He stuck with Moses, and as a matter of fact, if you go back and read about what happened, at Mirabah, the water was bitter, and they wanted fresh water, and God told Moses to speak to the rock and bring out some fresh water. And Moses had already had it up to here with the people of Israel, and they had complained, and they had whined, and they had moaned, and they were so selfish and so petty. Uh, Moses decided, okay, I'm going to bring some water out of it, but I'm going to do more than speak. And he put both hands on that staff, and he came down on that rock a couple of times with that stick, and and it was out of his anger that he disobeyed God. And this is the third time in Moses' life that, that his anger had gotten the best of him. And yeah, God would forgive him. But decisions have consequences, you know. And bad decisions have bad consequences. And Moses never got to go into the promised land. But neither did Aaron. Now, if you go back and you read that, you go, well, what did he do? If I were Aaron, I'd be thinking that because he's probably a lot more spiritual than I am. But I'd be saying to God, well, I didn't say anything. I didn't do anything. I didn't touch the rock. It was, you know, little brother, you know how he is when he gets all wound up. Uh, he could have said all of that because if you go back and read it, Aaron never opened his mouth one time. And I wonder, though, if that might have been the real problem. Aaron didn't open his mouth even one time. Because as a priest in the Old Testament, they had certain things that they had to do because they were in charge of the place where God came down and met with his people. And that was a very sacred duty. Now, who are the priests in the New Testament? It's you and I, because we are a priesthood of believers. So what do you mean we're in charge of the place where meet, people meet God? Yes, we are, uh, in the sense that we know Jesus Christ is the way to have a relationship with God. So we're introducing God to people, and we're introducing people to God. We are a royal priesthood, holy unto the Lord. Moses, or but Aaron was the one who had to, to do these things. And he also was the one through whom God would speak at various times and to ignore him. You can read uh, uh, several places uh, where people paid a dear price for not listening. And I, as I 
close out this point, I, I just want to say this. Those of us, and we're all priests, but there's some of us that God has called to preach and teach his word. And I'm not only responsible as one of those for what I say, but I also will have to give an account for what I don't say. It's a burden, man, some, sometimes that, boy, without God's help, you couldn't bear it. I'm just telling you. Uh, next Sunday is Sanctity of Life Sunday. I, I already have a holy fear about next Sunday. I, I, I'm just going to get kind of personal with you here. I, you know how the abortion thing has just driven me insane. It, it's just so hard for me to wrap my mind around. But when I, I, I talk about it, I, I can just tell you, uh, and it goes with any sin, but I, if, if I don't say something about it, what if I just stay quiet about it? What if I go, well, it's sad, but it's complicated. I, I hear all of that. There, well, there's a lot more to it and, and all of that. And I, and, and I know when I say things like, well, I don't understand how a Christian could ever, ever vote for a pro-choice politician. I mean that. I don't understand it. For 20 years, I've offered to take you to lunch. I'm buying. If you'll sit down with me and tell me, I'm a born-again Christian, and I vote for pro-choice politicians, and here's why. And I'm going to try to not get too worked up over this, but I want to tell you, we kill children in this country by the thousands every day. And I don't want to stand before God one day and have to give an account for what I didn't say. This past Wednesday, the House of Representatives voted on a bill, a bill that said we have to provide medical care to any child that survives an abortion. Why do we need a bill that says we should provide medical care for any child that's helplessly lying on a table dying. I'm so glad the guy's okay, but the NFL stopped in its tracks over a guy who was lying on a football field who was a superstar because he needed medical attention. Could you imagine needing Congress to pass a bill that said we have to provide medical help for him? Somebody has to call an ambulance and do all they can to save his life. The whole world came to a stop. T-shirts were made. There was fundraising in the millions of dollars. It all went on. But I can tell you there are children in this country that die on tables left alone because we need a bill that says you have to provide care for them. And it passed the house, 220 to 210. And you ought to look up the ones. 210 people voted against it. And if all of that's just not something you're into, good luck. Or good news, I guess I'd say. It won't ever make it to a vote in the Senate. It'll take a miracle. Take a miracle. I can tell you, and when I say these things, 
I, I've, I have Christians who look at me like, they, you start staring at their shoes. Have I just run it in the ground? Have, have I just driven you insane with it? Uh, do you just look at me like, Mike, you need to move on? It is, you, I, I have friends of mine that have come to me and tried to console me and tell me, well, you know, there's only so much you can do about it. We got one vote and blah, 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 and on and on and on. I'm telling you, I don't want to hear any more of that because we don't treat any other issue like that. I can tell you that. But somehow or another, that one's gotten kind of clothed in, oh, I don't know. It's complicated, they tell me. Not a single issue voter, Pastor. What about the children that are born that nobody wants them? Well, you want to kill them because nobody wanted them? I was born. My mother didn't want me. I'm glad that somebody didn't decide, well, since she doesn't want him and his mom and dad's divorce, he'll be better off. <laughs> I get that look right there. Like, Pastor, you know, taking up a lot of your sermon time. I'm sorry, man. And I don't apologize for what I say. I'm sorry that it just breaks my heart. We're going to give an account for that one day. Disappointments. We have to learn some things in the wilderness concerning decisions that we make. In verse 4, says they set out from Mount Hor. This is in chapter 21 now by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. What's the deal with Edom? Well, Edom was the descendants of Esau. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 3, it says that Esau shall be called Edom. He was red and uh, red-headed, they'd say, or whatever they, we think, because his name meant red, and Edom was that kind of a place, and he became the father of, of the Edomites, and I know you know the story about how he swapped off his birthright for something that was really ridiculous, just a bowl of soup, and all of that, he gave up the right to be in the bloodline with Jesus Christ for something that would only satisfy him maybe an hour. I don't know if it did Esau an hour, because Edom could mean when he saw stuff, he had Edom. I, I, I just made that up. <laughs> but he was the father of the Edomites, and here we are now, man. He's been dead a long time, but the decisions that he made to be stupid, the ignorant, selfish, short-sighted ignorance of Esau from Hehal is still plaguing the people of God. And let me tell you this, it doesn't stop here. They're going around Edom because they don't want to go through there and fight with them. And God tells Moses, or Moses tells us in the book of Deuteronomy that he had told Moses, don't take my people through Edom. I'm not going to give you that land. I did promise it to Esau. He doesn't deserve it, but of course, none of you do either. So uh, I'm going to leave that with him. you got to go around it. Because of the division that was caused years before this event, but to tell you how long it lived, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, there was a man named Herod the Great who tried to have Jesus killed. And Herod the Great was from Idumea, which is a Greek word for Edom. Herod the Great was an Edomite. 
That's why he was considered to be part Jewish. So in Bethlehem, when Jesus was born, Esau and Jacob are still going at it. And bad decisions outlive us sometimes, don't they? They live through our children, through our families, the examples that we set. Be careful when you say foolish things like, I want to do what I want to do, and I'm not hurting anybody but myself. In the wilderness, God can teach us, no, your decisions may have an impact for generations to come. We can learn some things about life. Secondly, we can learn some things about ourselves. Oh, these are... <laughs> These are kind of tough, but first of all, we can learn that we can be really incredibly shallow. In verse 4, it says that they became impatient because of the journey. Man, God rescued them. It would be like you getting somebody out of prison that was on death row that had no possibility of ever escaping. Let's just say not because they were a criminal, but criminal, but let's say they were in a foreign country like we've had some things go on lately and and, and we're trying to, 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 to get them out or trying to rescue them or, or whatever. And, and uh, some of them are criminals. But I'm just saying, what if, if you got them out, you risk your life, and it cost God his life to save us from our sins. But Israel, even after they were rescued from Egypt, they grumbled, it seemed, every day of the journey about we don't like this and we don't like that. And whine, they, they would whine and go on and on about foolish, foolish things. We can be so incredibly shallow sometimes. I, 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 I just, I pray to God that, and God has blessed me. Uh, I've, I've been blessed with a, with a great life. I mean, I've had some tough things happen in the last few years. They've been pretty exciting. But I can tell you, I just can't say enough about God's goodness to me. He has been so good to me. I, will, I just hope and pray I never choose to whine. It is so foolish. How could I? He came to this earth and died on the cross to save me from my sins. So what? If cancer had taken me last year or year before last year, whenever all of that was going on in my life, had it taken me from this earth, I can't complain. He died for my sinfulness. I'm going to spend eternity with God forever. What do I have to complain about? Oh, but we can be so shallow. Life's here is just so tough. Man, we've even turned heaven instead of a place where we get to fellowship with our Savior into a place where we don't have arthritis anymore. And I certainly hope I don't. I crack and pop. I sound like a load of one before falling off a truck when I try to stand up. I have some kind of arthritic thing up in the thoraxal column. Boy, I'm, I, I need to work on my big words. I'm not doing well them today, but whatever it is, it's up high in my back. I, I have trouble with it. It hurts like a toothache sometimes. All kinds of stuff. I, I don't 
ever want to get to looking at heaven like, oh, Lord, down here, God, all I had was a little single wide. But up there, hallelujah, I'm going to live in a double wide with a deck on the back. Because if you make this life about you, good chance is you'll make the next one about you too. Neither one of them is. Neither. We can be so shallow though. Even in verse 7, <laughs> they didn't say, oh, man, tell God we want to get right with him. No, the only thing they asked for was just get these snakes out of here. I'd have been for that, and, and I don't understand. I know the fiery thing means that we think that their bikes were really, really painful, but I, I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm not afraid of them if I see them in time, but if for me, if you want to bother me with a snake, he won't have to be on fire. He can just be the usual non-flammable kind, and I don't want him around me. I've been bitten by snakes twice and, and thankfully by non-venomous ones. But I, I can just tell you, boy, they were so foolish. Just get the snakes out. Entreat God, Moses, not that we want to get right with him, not that we're sorry for our sins. Beg God to please just remove the snakes. Pretty shallow. Secondly, we can also be incredibly scornful. It says, why have you brought us out of Egypt? You, in verse 5, you bring us out here to die. Now, that's what you call, in the English language, a smart aleck. Okay? That's a smart aleck. What would you do? Bring us out here to die? One time they asked Moses, says, were there not enough graves in Egypt so you brought us out here so we could just all die? And you could just bury us out here? If you ever wonder why Moses didn't take that stick and just two-hand it around somebody's head, I, I don't wonder why he hit the rock. I wonder why he didn't kill about half of them. Matter of fact, one time God decided, I am going to kill them, and I'm going to start with a brand-new bunch, and Moses talked him out of it. Pretty incredible. But, oh, man, we can say the meanest, most scornful things. Uh, Psalm 1 talks about don't walk in the way of the wicked or in the paths of sinners. And then it says, do not sit in the seat of the scornful. The, the, the wicked have their, the, their way and, and the sinners have their path. But the scornful, did you notice what they were doing? They were sitting. <laughs> they have a seat. That's where scorners like to be because they like to sit. They don't like to work. They don't like responsibility. They don't care about being involved, but they want to tell you how you should do it and how they would do it if they weren't too lazy and too backslid on God to do it themselves. That's the definition of a scorner. <laughs> They're sitting. David says, stay out of their seat. Stay out of their seats. We can be shallow, scornful. We can be incredibly selfish. In verse 5, they said, we loathe this miserable food. I don't fly a lot anymore. May go back to India one day. I'd like to. 
But I used to travel a good bit, and I don't know. I, people complain about airplane food, whatever. I read about people getting in fights on these flights and all of that. I, I, for some reason, when I flew, I knew, well, I didn't, this trip is not about sitting on this plane. We're going somewhere, and I'm getting off the plane. Now, there was another reason I probably didn't grumble about the food. Most of the places that I went when I flew, I knew that there would be a mess of barbecue monkey brains when I got there. So a little smoked squid on American Airlines was not a problem for me. Phew. And that was just the food that I ate that I knew what it was. Oh, we need to learn some lessons about life, about ourselves. And then last of all, learn some lessons about God. You can learn this in the wilderness. Number one, his love can be stern. He sent these fiery serpents in verse 6. The word fiery is sadraf. Sadraf, if you remember, sadrafim means burning, and, and the sadrafim that were flying in the temple in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6, it meant burning. They were glowing with fire. So sadraf is to burn these fiery serpents. It means they were very, very painful. But here was God's point. I don't want to leave you like you are. It is not my intention to hurt you. But you know the wages of sin is death. And I can tell you sometimes God will let our decisions catch up with us and let us reap what we sow and we may think he hates us, but it's because he loves us and because he cares about us that he doesn't want to leave us where we are. Sometimes we think of love and wrath as God is either loving us or either he's mad at us. I'm telling you, God either loves us or God either loves us. He loves us all the time. My, my dad, when he would... Would, would, would crack the leather. It wasn't because he hated me. He was trying to help me to, to understand that I can't leave you like you are. I don't want you to grow up and be selfish, and I don't want you to grow up and be disrespectful, and I don't want you to grow up and be indignant. And man, I can tell you something. He, he worked really hard at that. He was not a perfect dad, but I can say this. This goes on his resume, and he's with the Lord in heaven now, but I'm 62 years old. My brother is 65 years old. And when we see people that are anywhere close to our age or older, it is yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and yes, sir, and no, sir. It's not bragging on me. I'm still paranoid that he might come back in a dream and wear my behind out. I've seen kids, uh, I know we've all got those stories, boy, if I was young and had a balloon in my day. I can tell you, when I was a kid and I would see other kids start cutting up in church especially, I'd get scared because I'd like, my daddy's going to kill you in a minute. He's bound to. 
we weren't able in church to even turn around and look back. That's right. I don't know if it was because of Lot's wife or what the deal was, but I promise you the whole back of the building could have fell off in a well and I'd have never seen it. You didn't turn around and look back. I don't care what happened. Somebody screaming, hollering, hooping, whatever. It doesn't make any difference. Gunfire, we wouldn't have turned around. No siree. I, 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 you got to understand God loves you, friend. He loves you too much to let you keep just ruining your life. And you can outdo him. These people here did. He tried all kinds of ways to coach them lovingly with his heavy hands at times. They would not respond. And they died in the same sand and dry desert in which they rebelled. His love can be stern. His plans can be strange. Verse 9, he made a a bronze serpent. Moses made a bronze serpent. This, this passage helped me to understand something. You be careful when you start deciding what God can use and what he can't use. Well, this looks a lot like an idol, does it not? It's made out of brass. It's up on a pole. And God told Moses, don't put it in the tabernacle. No, 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 no. A lot of people can't get in there. Put it in the middle of the camp. I want it to where everybody can see it. It's available to everybody, and if they have the faith to look at it, then their lives can be saved. If they decide, I'm not going to look at it, then they will die. And that's just how it was. And he put this serpent on a pole. But God used this brass serpent as a way to determine whether they had faith in God to believe that he could heal them. So I have learned to be a little careful when I start to say foolish things like, well, I just don't think God can use that. I, that's just not of the Lord. And I want to tell you, God can use anything he wants to use. And this will shock you. He doesn't need my approval to do it. That just blew me away, Bob. I, I, he doesn't need my approval. To, I, 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 I know we are very open here with our worship and all of that. I've heard people say, I, I, I played bass guitar before I started playing keyboards years ago. And, and uh, oh, I've heard preachers say, that bass guitar, that don't belong in the house of God. That's how they say it, by the way. I even heard one say, it's got that, that old African thunk to it. It's a cultic. Don't need it in the house of God. Well, I need to find something else to play then because apparently I'm playing something the devil made. I know churches that won't have drums and all that stuff. You be careful when you start all that jazz about things you just grew up not liking. That is purely cultural, totally unbiblical, and incredibly non-theological. Why don't you just keep your mouth shut and let God use whatever he wants to use? Because if he's planning on using you, you ought to know by now that must mean he can use anything he wants to. I'm going to tell you something that's going to shock you. He can use a banjo. I'm not sure about an accordion. 
I'm still looking into it. Can use what he wants to. Let me tell you about this old serpent. And then we'll go to our last point. Boy, they forgot a lot of stuff. But do you know 700 years later, they still had this brass snake. And people began to worship it. That's right. Just like people, it's like we have never changed. Instead of worshiping God, they would worship the snake. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, it says, King Hezekiah, who was one of the good kings of Judah, tore down some of the high places, that meant the Asherah poles and things like that, that God's people had started to worship. And he took this serpent and he broke it into pieces. Boy, that don't look well on a resume, especially because they had revered that thing. And they began to worship it. As a matter of fact, I'll even tell you that later it became a part of, of cultic culture, especially uh, among the Greeks. And, and I'll even tell you this, the ones you see on ambulances that go down the road, that is, uh, that, that, that is reverence to Asclepius, who was the Greek god of healing. Now, the Greeks didn't come along until much later, but wouldn't you know our society instead of, and I know you and I see it and we think about Moses, right? That's not, that's not why it's there. Our world today sees the serpent on the pole as part of Greek mythology, and they highly doubt that Moses ever put one on a pole. That's how crazy we are. But let me tell you, the point for you and I is this. Don't take things that God uses in our lives and start to worship them. I know people that worship church buildings. They worship pastors. They worship Bible translations. They worship ideas. They worship a lot of things that takes their worship away from God. Last of all, his love can be stern. His plans can be strange. His grace will be sufficient. He says, set it on a standard available to all. And if they will look at it, I'm sure some didn't. But he says, if they will. Well, some measure of human volition there, but he said, if they will look at it, they can live. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Sound like Jesus knew what the serpent thing was about. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Sometimes you put things up at a certain height so everything around it doesn't keep people from seeing it. Put important signs way up on poles, make sure they're lighted or whatever. Jesus says, my people need to lift up the Son of Man. Lift up Jesus Christ. Don't lift up our style of worship. 
Don't lift up our theology that we feel like is right, maybe, and everybody else is wrong or whatever. Don't, all of these peripheral things, Christ needs to be lifted up above all of that because if they focus on us, they're not going to see Jesus. They need to be able to see him. So lift Jesus up and make sure that he's higher than anything else in our life. And these things that we fight and fuss about and split churches over, man, and I can tell you now, they're worthless in comparison to lifting up our Savior. That's what our world needs to see. They need to see Jesus. These are some pretty tough lessons. Sometimes these are lessons you can only learn in the wilderness. I would just say to you today, Maybe that's where you feel like you are. Maybe that's where you feel like you need to go. Get away. I don't mean geographically move. I, I, that's not, I, that, that's try, trying to be a spiritual hermit is not the point. But maybe you need to rearrange some priorities in your life. Look at some things that are taking up so much of your time. Pull away from all of that and go to a place where there's not so many distractions. And you may can do that without even leaving home. But begin to focus on the Word of God and find out what God has to say. And watch Him and follow His path. I hope if you're here today and you feel like, man, I've been in the wilderness for far too long. There was a time God told these people right here, you've circled this mountain long enough, you need to move on. Sometimes you get to circling a mountain and God's ready for you to move. Just saying, His grace is sufficient, friend. He's wanting to say some things to you and teach you some things. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray right now, you will help us to learn what you've tried to teach us today. I pray, God, you'll help us as we, as we look at our lives and we see things, God, maybe about which we've complained or, or grumbled, Lord, or things that we felt like were a terrible lot for us. God, maybe there were things for which we should be grateful. Maybe we've grown wise in our own eyes, Lord, and instead of leaning on you, we've leaned on our own understanding, God. And, and Lord, we're waiting on you to move in a circumstance. Maybe you're waiting on us to move in that circumstance. I pray you help us, God. I pray, Father, you would help us as a body of Christ. Lord, to follow you it won't always make sense. Lord, we know that going around Edom was going to make the journey long, and it triggered these people, God, to begin to grumble and to hate you over it. It was out of the way. Why are we going this direction? It made no sense to them, God. I pray you'd help us to be willing to follow you when it makes no sense to us and to stop leaning on our own understanding, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. 
If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at ServantsWay.com or email us at office at ServantsWay.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.